Please pray with me. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, Son of God and Son of Man, you are Lord of the Sabbath. Teach us the true meaning of Sabbath so that we may follow you more closely, serve you more truly, and enter into your rest. Amen. The scripture reading is Luke 6, verses 1 through 11. On a Sabbath, while Jesus was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God, and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to him, to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. In case you're wondering, there is no dramatic story about how I injured my foot. I was just walking on carpet <laughs> and tripped and fell. We may be in a new location today, uh, but we're just doing what we always do uh, when we gather for worship on Sunday. We, we gather to remember God's forgiving grace, to listen to the scriptures together, to eat and drink uh, with Jesus at his table, and then to be sent in, in service in all our various vocations and callings and, and neighborhoods. In our current preaching series, our goal has been to think about who Jesus was and, and is, especially in relationship with other people. We've noted how Jesus interacted with such a diversity of people from across the social spectrum, rich and poor, different ethnicities and, and backgrounds, the powerless, the privileged, outsiders and insiders. And amidst this diversity, we find people who approach Jesus with very different 
attitudes. Some people welcomed him immediately, but others were, were highly critical of him and his disciples. So today, we want to consider how Jesus related to the critics. And I think this is something we can all relate to. We, we all know what it's like to be criticized. Uh, so what can we learn from Jesus? Our text today from the Gospel of Luke gives us two short vignettes from the ministry of Jesus in which he's criticized by the religious leaders of his day. One in a field, the other in a synagogue. Both of these take place on the Sabbath and focus on how Jesus challenged their expectations. In the first episode, it's Jesus' disciples who are criticized, which reflects on their teacher and, and Jesus responds. And in the second episode in the synagogue, Jesus acts in a way that deliberately provokes a critique by having the man in need of healing come and stand in front of everyone right in the middle of the room. Jesus wasn't afraid of criticism. In fact, he almost seems to invite it here. And so let's consider three things in these stories today. First, I want to spend some time trying to understand the critics of Jesus. When so many people were embracing him, why would anyone be so critical? What was driving them? Second, let's look at the, the confidence that Jesus expressed in the face of this criticism. He, he wasn't afraid to deal with it. And finally, uh, what, what is the call of Jesus as we deal with critics? You know, whatever that looks like for us. So. The, the critics of Jesus, the confidence of Jesus, and the call of Jesus. Let's talk first about the critics of Jesus. We, we get a pretty good picture of them in this first story. On a Sabbath day, while Jesus and his disciples are walking through the grain fields, the disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. Details are significant. They're intended to make clear that according to the strictest traditions of these religious leaders, the Pharisees, the disciples are doing work on the Sabbath. The fourth commandment made it clear that the Jewish people were to sanctify the seventh day of the week by not doing any work, but the Old Testament didn't provide all of the details about what did or did not count as work. And this is what led to these traditions and rabbinic debates about how to honor the Sabbath. And the Pharisees had very strong convictions that work shouldn't include activities like reaping or threshing or winnowing or preparing food on the Sabbath, all of which the disciples were potentially guilty of by plucking the grain and by rubbing it between their hands and separating the wheat from the chaff in order to eat it. In the next story, too, when Jesus heals the man with a withered hand, this is all about what work should happen on the Sabbath. The scribes and the Pharisees believed that healing someone on the Sabbath was a fine thing to do, but only if it was a life-threatening situation. You know, if it could wait, you know, if the guy could come back on the next day, then it would be better in order to honor the Sabbath uh, in order to be respectful and reverent, uh, for it to wait and, and not to, to do unnecessary healings 
on the Sabbath. What we see in these stories is that though the the Pharisees were trying to do everything right, their attitude towards those like Jesus who didn't follow their interpretation was full of bitterness and, and anger. When they see the disciples in the field, they come with an indictment. Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? They are the judge and the arbiters of the law, and no one could disagree with them. And you can see how their suspicion has grown in verse 7. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. They are suspicious and, and looking for problems. And then when Jesus does perform the healing, they are filled with fury and they begin to plot against him. Surprisingly, the greatest critics of Jesus were religious critics. The story shows us that religion itself can be a way of serving ourselves rather than God. As C.S. Lewis said, of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst. Let me offer uh, an illustration to clarify how this could possibly happen. The classic movie Amadeus tells the story of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart's uh, life as told by Antonio Salieri, the, the contemporary composer who was insanely jealous of Mozart's talent and, and claimed to have murdered him. There's a scene in the movie in which Salieri as a boy, kneels before a crucifix and makes a bargain with God. Lord, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music and be celebrated myself. Make me famous throughout the world, dear God. Make me immortal. In return, I vow I will give you my chastity, my industry, my deepest humility every hour of my life, and I will help my fellow man all I can. Think about this. Salieri here is very religious. He's praying. He offers God everything. He wants to serve others. But he's really offering God a deal. I sacrifice for you, and in return, you give me what I want. He didn't trust God to give him in his life what he needed. He trusted that he knew that he would find what he needed in reputation and fame. And this is why, in the end, Salieri becomes a bitter old man, angry at God, angry at the world, angry at himself. He didn't get what he wanted or what he believed that he deserved. In a similar way, the scribes and the Pharisees are critical of Jesus because he's challenging not just their interpretation, but the bargain that they have made with God. That if they obey the rules, uh, that things will go well for them. 
How does Jesus respond to their criticism? In Jesus, we see an unusual kind of confidence. In response to his critics, Jesus is confident, but never derogatory or deprecating. He's challenging, but not critical. He claims great authority, but he also doesn't simply tell his opponents why they're wrong or how they're wrong. Instead, he asks questions for them to give the answers. He's both confident and humble at the same time. Do you see how there's something distinctive about this confident humility or or this humble confidence that we see in Jesus? Where does it come from? Consider what we learned from uh, this text. Remember the, the debate here is about what it really means to obey God's command to keep the Sabbath. For the Pharisees, it's a debate about the rules. And Jesus could have responded in a legalistic way by proving that he was actually keeping the rules better uh, than them. And and he could have given some justification for uh, why his teaching was better. Or or Jesus could have said that they were mistaken in this pursuit of obedience. And he could have said, well, you know, you're actually misunderstanding. The rules don't matter so much. But what we actually find is that Jesus' response is neither one of legalism nor license. Instead, Jesus goes to the heart of God's intention and the goal of the Sabbath. Notice how this works. Notice that Jesus does go to the Bible for his beliefs about the Sabbath. He affirms the authority of Scripture, but he offers a more nuanced interpretation than the Pharisees, and he makes an extraordinary claim about his own identity. Let me explain. In verse 3, in response to their legal challenge, Jesus tells the Pharisees a story from 1 Samuel 21. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. By pointing them to this story from the scriptures, Jesus shows that to interpret the Bible, you need to be more than a good lawyer. The Bible also includes lots of stories that illustrate what it means to live out the law in practice in a messy and broken world. The story of David eating the bread from the temple when he was on the run from his persecutors reveals two things. First, that human need is more important than ritual obedience. So when David and his men are hungry, they eat the bread that was normally only for the priests. And second, the king has special privileges and authority. David's men ate because they were with David, the king. And Jesus' disciples eat because they are with Jesus, the son of David, the messianic king. Jesus claims for himself the most exalted identity imaginable. He's the Son of Man, the Lord of the Sabbath, and yet he never comes off as prideful or arrogant. When you believe 
that Jesus is also with you as you face conflict and, and criticism. Something of his confident humility will also mark your character. We see an example of this in uh, the Apostle Paul, who before his conversion was a highly respected leader among the Pharisees. He made it his goal to keep the religious law perfectly. He persecuted the followers of Jesus. But through his own encounter with Jesus, Paul came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah who had died and risen again. And this faith changed how he responded to critique. Prior to his conversion, he was furious that anyone would disagree with him. And we have several examples of what that looked like. But after his conversion, he exhibits something of Christ's humble confidence. For example, in his first letter to the Corinthians, he responds to criticism that he was receiving by people in that church. And he says in 1 Corinthians 4, uh, verses 3 to 4, uh, these words, uh, But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, I don't care if you judge me. In fact, I don't care if I judge me. The only thing that matters is what the Lord thinks. When you can live like this, before the face of God, then you will have something of the humble confidence of Jesus in you too. You'll have an authority outside of yourself on which you can rely. But because this authority is Jesus, who gave his life for you, then you can rest in his love. His authority will humble you, but it will never crush you because he was crushed for you. Jesus calls his followers to respond to criticism in the same way that he does, taking up his cross and following him. This means more than simply accepting the suffering that comes into our lives. It means being willing to stand in places that are uncomfortable or that result in opposition for the sake of others, especially the weak or the powerless. This is what we see Jesus doing in the synagogue. He knows that the scribes and the Pharisees hold him in suspicion and are out to get him. And then he intentionally says to the man with the deformed hand that he sees there, come and stand here. Literally in Greek, uh, it says, come and stand in the middle where everyone can see. And then Jesus asked them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And verse 10 is, is so vivid. And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. The point is this. Of course God's intention for the Sabbath is to do good. I knew that was going to happen. Of course, God's intention for the Sabbath is to do good, to save life, not to, to harm or to destroy. 
But the, the scribes and the Pharisees have so made the Sabbath into a tool uh, for their own self-righteousness about them that they can no longer see its purpose. They can't even answer the question. But for Jesus, the Sabbath was meant to bless those who needed rest in the deepest possible way. And Jesus calls us to the same task in every area of the church's life. This reminds me of something that the artist and author Makoto Fujimura calls culture care, uh, which he describes as an alternative to culture war. Culture care, Fujimura says, is about cultivating communities of goodness, truth, and beauty for the sake of others. He describes the character of this kind of community in this way. I, I put this quote in the reflections page. You can look at it later. But he, he describes it in this way. A healthy community is one that is secure, anchored in tradition and faith, but also allowing for a dynamic movement outward, sending forth artists and missionaries, caregivers and entrepreneurs. It is centered and confident in its identity as a flock because it knows the purpose for which the good shepherd has gathered it, to serve and bless and transform the wider world. Especially as we step into this new building today, um, brothers and sisters, now we must remember that this building is a blessing, is a place for us to cultivate community and discipleship in all sorts of ways. This is not just for ourselves, but that we would be equipped uh, for culture care, to serve and bless and transform the wider world, wherever we go from this place. This will only be possible if we are first transformed ourselves by God's grace. If we're not, then we will go out from here, but we won't have the aroma of Christ. People will know that our service is really more about ourselves in our own religious duty, like Salieri. But if our hearts have been changed, in an encounter with Jesus as the judge who was judged in our place, then we will be marked by humility. What does it look like to experience this kind of transformation? Well, let me close with an illustration from C.S. Lewis's uh, The Chronicles of Narnia. In the voyage of the Don Treader, there is a boy with the unfortunate name Eustace Scrub. And he gets dragged into an adventure that he didn't choose in the land of Narnia with his cousins, Lucy and Edmund. He's not the most pleasant boy. He looks down on everyone else. He complains, he steals, he's mean and petty, he's thoughtless. But one night, something happens that changes him forever. He finds an enormous pile of treasure in a cave. And this was Eustace's dream come true. And he falls asleep on this pile, making plans of what to do with his newfound wealth. But when he wakes up, he discovers that he's turned into a hideous dragon. The treasure belonged to a dragon, and as Lewis writes, sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, he'd become a dragon himself. Eustace became what he worshipped. And the experience of being a dragon is very difficult for Eustace. He's cut off from others. He's in pain. 
He's afraid for the future. But as he goes through this difficult time of living as a dragon, something happens. His desires change. He longs to be just a boy again. His pride is taken away, and he's humbled. And one day, Eustace the dragon meets a mysterious lion who leads him to a garden and tells him to undress, to try and take off his dragon skin. And he manages to peel off a layer, but he finds another layer of dragon skin underneath. And this happens repeatedly until the lion says, you will have to let me undress you. And here is how Eustace describes what happened next. I was afraid of his cause, I tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. But when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. I turned into a boy again. The lion, of course, was Aslan, the Christ figure of Narnia. And in this encounter with Aslan, Eustace's heart is transformed. Friends, this is what anyone who truly encounters Jesus will find. When you turn to Jesus and you trust him rather than other things in this world, when you let him undress you, when you allow him even to take your pride away, then you're humbled. The other opinions of people begin to matter less to you, and his opinion begins to matter more. Because he has made his opinion known once and for all. On the cross, Jesus shows his heart of forgiveness and even towards those who are opposed to him. This includes anyone who's been self-centered or self-righteous or worshiped something created rather than the creator. Jesus invites us all to turn to him today, to trust in his suffering, self-sacrificial love, and that his love is sufficient for all of our needs. Let me close with this. In John 15, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Jesus says, that the love that the Father has had for his Son from all eternity belongs to those who trust in him. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. If, as we've seen today, we can take even good things and turn them into sources of our own self-righteousness, then we may be more sinful and broken than we realized. But if Jesus gave his life for us on the cross, then we're also more loved than we could ever imagine. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for revealing yourself uh, to the world in the person and work of Jesus. Help us to see him clearly today, to look to him, to know his holiness and his humility, 
And may our own hearts be changed in an encounter with him so that we might be your faithful people. May we give as you give, serve as you serve, and love as you love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.